Hey everyone, I'm your host Michael Nova and welcome to Rise Up 8 Radio. Dr. James Kelly is the host of the Executives After Hours podcast, which he runs from Dubai, interviewing executives not about their businesses, but about their personal journeys and what made them successful. James has some great stories on how he was able to find himself and his mission in life. Here's our interview with Dr. James Kelly. So, James, you've interviewed many executives for your podcast. And I've always said that anyone who is successful in life has experienced some kind of adversity to get there. So has the subject of overcoming adversity come up in your interviews much with these successful people? I mean, I think that's an absolute relevant statement on your part. So many executives, so many senior leaders have had major, major issues in their life. I call them crucibles, had major crucibles in their life. Um, that has allowed them to transform themselves one way or another. Hmm. So what are the common threads that you keep seeing coming up in these conversations? Well, how do you mean by common threads? Like, do you mean what type of adversity or do you mean outcomes? I mean, I always find that, uh, that there are common threads in all the interviews that I do um, where for instance, uh, I noticed that everyone has their own story, but it's almost like it's the same story in a way because everyone goes through <laughs> their, their own their own difficulties and their own challenges. But in the end, it's all the human condition. It's all like different versions of the same kind of thing where, you know, they reach the bottom and there's no way else mm. but up and then they so start macro, climbing yeah. up. Yeah. Sure. Um, so there's definitely macro. I think I think that, you know, everyone's bottom is different. Mm. I think, you know, the, the range of executives I've interviewed, I'm up to about 140, 150 at this point. And the range of depth is what's fascinating to me. And I kind of have a theory that was born out of this. You know, I have a book coming out in spring, and, and one of the main crux of the book is this idea of the crucible and the transformation that leaders make. And so one of the theories that I have is that the deeper the crucible and the more open the leader is to transformation, the higher they go. Now, I've, I've met leaders who have had very minor crucibles who are very successful, but I argue they're not as self-aware as those that have gone through just tremendous hell and come back again self-awareness uh that's a word that keeps coming up you know the the fact that it i think it takes a while for people to become self-aware unless they're Mm -hmm. born with kind of an uh, inner sensitivity (laughs) you know like like maybe you and i have because because of the kind of things that we've been through um but when can you please define the word crucible for those that that don't understand yeah, sure. what that is? So I mean, you can you can you can term the word crucible as adversity. I like the word crucible because it's such a personal statement, right? Um, and so the way I define crucible is any significant moment in your life that gives you significant pause 
and gives you the opportunity to reflect. Now, the key word there is opportunity. Not everyone takes that opportunity. You know, in my life directly, I have, I have siblings who completely disregard the opportunity to evolve as human beings and unfortunately have had really difficult life. So, and I, I remember, you know, our conversation when I was on your show, you mentioned about your brother, right? Yeah, I've got two of them that are a bit crappy, to be to be frank. Mm. So, I, you know, I have I have one who decided when I was eighteen to steal my social security number and get credit cards, mm. and I caught him. He said he would never do it again, and and I'll get to, and then. Five years later, I was in this apartment, and I found three of them with my name on them, checked my credit report. They were all maxed out, not paid back, so forth and so on. Um, and when I confronted him, he denied everything. And, and here's the kicker. Here's the worst part about it, and you can imagine what this does psychologically. He was my best friend. So you know, in his mind, he, he did no wrong. And in my mind, I thought he was just an ass. And was unable to acknowledge, even to this day, this is 15 years ago. And in fact, I sent him an email last week saying, hey, listen, I'm going to be in your city during this trip. I'd love to see you. I'd love to kind of re-engage. I'd love for you to meet my kids. I'd love for you to meet my wife. And I got nothing. And I, I, feel, I feel bad for him. I feel bad for him because he's choosing to have a life of isolation through you know, in, dis- in disregarding our previous experience as human beings. And it, it, it saddens me, right? I, I don't have any real siblings that I'm close to. And my wife has this amazing family where all of her siblings get along really well. And I'm like, man, that would be really nice. Mm-hmm. Mm. So, yeah, that, that's that's heavy. You know, the, uh, the family aspect of our lives yeah. are can cause so much pain, so much happiness mm-hmm. and so much pain. Um, it's, it's Well, and I, and I think, I think Michael, I think that's always, for most of the people I've interviewed too, family is always a huge part of it because you have to think about the amount of time you spend with your family. Yeah. So for like you, there was a big gap in your family between your brothers and you and your parents. So you had this unique dynamic with your family. With me, I was the youngest by five years and I had parents that both worked. So... I was a latchkey kid, really young as well. I was asked not to burn down the house and watch TV when I got home, so so the barometer wasn't high. And you know, um, in terms of my other brother, he's he's battled mental illness his whole entire life. I mean, since he's probably been nineteen, twenty. You know, my poor mom. I mean, if you want a horrific story, she's had to basically raise his two kids, and you know, they still live here at the house. One's twenty three, one's twenty, and they they can't get their their act together, and so. You know, my other brother used to hit me when I was a child a lot, abuse me, thought it was fun because it was a power trip for him. Uh, there was definitely some psychological outcomes of that in terms of intimidation by men. Um, you know, my father was fairly aggressive as well. Not not overly abusive, I wouldn't say, but, but when there was a punishment, it was usually physical in nature. It wasn't conversation. And so, uh, you know, when, you, when you're raised in a family where physical altercation is the means to end a conflict, it has some long-term ramifications. I mean, even to this day, like if I'm in a room full of men, that have you can sense you know when you're in a room with full of, of men who just have power or they like to use power let's put it that way I don't know if you've been in that situation but for me it's very intimidating and it's very insecure and, uh, I become very insecure I start to sweat I can't make eye contact it's something I'm keenly aware of and something that I'm really really trying to work on as a human being because 
that feeling of powerlessness, and I'm sure you've had many guests who feel this way, is such a powerful emotion that a human being can have. Yeah. Well, let's let's talk a bit about uh, you know this period where you said that you were like a rudderless vessel at sea in your in your bio, um, and you went through this period where you were looking for meaning in your life, for where you belonged in the world and where your mm-hmm. place was. Can you go into a little bit of of what what led you down this this uh, place uh, where you were kind of like at the bottom and how you were able to start working yourself out of this pit. So, yeah, let me let me preface by saying that I don't believe anyone's journey is complete, and I believe that everyone's journey is ongoing. So I'm, I'm maybe halfway through my journey at this point, and even to this day, I just hired a professional coach because I realize I still get in my own way. But... You're kind of going back, you know, as as being the youngest of three, and having parents that worked both of time, uh, both worked. I didn't really have a lot of guidance, you know. I played sports my whole life, and everyone always talks about having that coach or that that parent that really influenced them. I never had that. I never had anyone who mentored me, and so for the longest time, and even sometimes I argue even now, I feel like, what's my purpose? What am I doing? It's like my life mission. And as, as you know, Michael, many of the people that you interview, once they find that purpose, their life just, boom, takes off. You know, for you, it was that 12 years of that, that you know, multimedia project that you did. And so for me, even from an early age at 17, you know, the, only, the only request my parents had was try university life. Just try it. Just try it. Like a piece of chocolate, right? Just try it. And so – you know, uh, I did, and I failed miserably at it. Uh, I, I think I finished my freshman year with a 2.0, maybe 2.1 or something like that. I drank a lot. Uh, it was the first time I was, I was really away from my parents, per se, in terms of total freedom. And, you know, I played a sport. So here I am at 18 years old, practicing and playing you know, 30 to 40 hours a week in a Division One sport, working 15 hours a week, trying to go to school, transitioning to a new life. I just didn't know what I wanted to do. And so I quit I quit school, and I had the fallacy that my girlfriend back in my hometown, which was which is Portland, Oregon, her and I were going to get married, right? She was still in high school. It's one of those things where you're like, oh, yeah, for sure that's it. She was the excuse. It was the excuse for me to, to, to leave school. And so I came back, and... I lived with my grandma at the time, and um, I tried to go to school again here. didn't work. I quit. So I was just working aimless jobs. You know, I was a lifeguard. I was teaching, uh, and then I ended up selling cars, which was so random. In fact, I went in to go buy a car, and they sold me a job, which I'm not sure how that happened really at the end of the day. Uh, and so here I am at this point. I'm 19, and I'm selling cars. And of course, you know, if, if you looked at me at 19, I'm this baby-faced kid. Total baby face. I don't think I finished puberty until about 35, probably. Um, and, and, so, and so I'm selling cars, thinking to myself, this is the best job ever. I'm making good money. Now, good money for me at that time was $25,000, $30,000. I never had money. Like the first time I ever had any money, I was like, this is amazing. I can, I, can, I can take a bus ride and not feel broke afterwards. So 
<laughs> and uh, and so I was I was doing this, and in fact, I think it was December or January, I got salesperson of the month, which you know for a 19 year old, I was pretty psyched about that to be honest with you. And I'm like, maybe this is my calling, maybe I should be doing sales, right? And then um, and so one day, you know, at this dealership that I was at, they had a, I, I sold new and used cars, and on the used car side, there was a shack. And the shack is kind of where you went to disappear for the day, where you didn't want the bosses to see you, and they maybe thought you were doing something you know, productive. So I walked in, and two guys had dollar bills rolled up, and they were doing lines of Coke. And they looked at me, and they one kind of, you know, almost like the movies, where he had the dollar bill on his finger, and he kind of raised it up to me and put the end that you would snort in your nose towards me and, and says, do you want to give it a go? And I just remember in that moment – feeling the beat of my heart and having a flash of two distinct paths. One is doing the drug, spiraling down, ending up in jail, or killing someone. And two was go right back to university and let's, let's try to right this ship a little bit. It's so, and so I walked out of that moment, I mean, literally walked straight to the phone. This was March, I remember. Called my mom and said, listen, I need to go back to university. <laughs> And they were like, okay, great. So, so I went back the next year, um, and you know that was I guess. In the following summer, my dad died. So every time I tried to get myself kind of on this path, let's get it going, you know. And you have to also realize that I've never been academically astute, which is ironic since I have a PhD at this point. But I was never academically astute. Like I barely got by college, two four I graduated college. I just never got studying. Like no one taught me to study. Again, this lack of mentorship is really plays out through my life. So I had I had no idea how to study. I had no motivation because I didn't feel like I was smart enough. I didn't feel like I belonged there. The not feeling smart goes back to my childhood of the physical abuse, being put down, being repressed physically, and, and felt like I had no control. Um, you know, and this is and this actually I mean and a whole other side of this, by the way, which I don't I've never talked about before, is that when I was in third and fourth grade, I started looking at porn. Right, so here I am in third grade, seeing porn for the first time, and you know there there was moments in this interaction between a friend of mine that, even at that age, though we were role playing, I was a submissive person in a relationship, so to speak, and you know it was just two kids being curious, not a real big deal on the surface, but at that age, so many ramifications for that as well. And so anyhow, so you couple all this with lack of insecurity, I feel depressed, I'm here, I'm in school again, and then the person that I'm supposed to look up to the most suddenly is dead. And you know, it was a six-month decline, he had congestive heart failure, six months later, he was gone, and that was it. And you know, so the one person who's supposed to be my mentor in life, and, and, and as every parent-child, for most of us, we try to go through a transition. For, for many of us, it's not successful, but it goes from parent-child to friends at some point. And we were starting to go through that transition a little bit. And I was really looking forward to that as a child who wanted to connect with his father. And my dad, I was his only biological son. So I think for him, he was probably looking forward to the same thing as well. So you lose your father. And again, this is still, I'm in this ocean, this vast sea, having no idea what direction I'm going. And your dad passes away. And now the sea seems a little bit bigger. And the boat seems a little bit smaller. And land land seems a lot further away. At this point. And so, you know, and, and I always want to preference my story of saying there are people who have way more horrific stories than I do, but everyone has their story. Um, and, and, and this is totally, you know, mine for what it's worth. And so, 
you know, here I am, my junior year of college, no major, no idea what I'm doing. And I see my counselor and he's just like, you need to pick something. And all I said was, what do I have the most credits in? And he was like, broadcasting. I'm like, great, let's do it. Now, now in this process, I'd also declared a math major, education major, business major. And then I finally finished up with a broadcasting major. So again, that's a great sign. I don't know what the hell I'm doing with my life. And so uh, I leave. I spent a summer at university working, drinking, you know, doing illicit activity. And um, I go from there to Chicago. And in Chicago, I decided to start getting a master's program. Again, this is a kid who had no idea what he wants to do. I'm not smart enough in my mind. Uh, um, but I started a program to, at a school called Columbia College to study media management, which is basically to be a film producer. And at the same time, I thought I wanted to be an actor. So I took some acting classes. And I remember, I remember at the end of like the twelve-week course, I said to the the acting teacher, "Do you think I have what it takes to make it?" And she was like, "Eh," and that's all I needed for the validation that I didn't belong. <laughs> it's that was it, like because mm. I just need someone to tell me, right? I think so many men, mm. specifically, at times in their life, just need someone to tell them, "Go do this," yeah. because we just don't know as human beings, especially if you are really insecure. Like, even to this day, I'm, I wish sometimes someone would say, "You were meant to do X." go do x mm-hmm. but it's a challenge it's a challenge so anyhow so so well, this whole idea that's of the journey ocean, that's so. the journey that yeah. we take is to find what what is it that we're good at and what is it that we love to do and finding that that uh th- that intersection where bo- both of them meet is is the ideal right mm-hmm. So yeah, and I and I think that's the challenge. And and for me, it was a constant struggle. And so just to fast forward a little bit, you know, I I took a job. I didn't finish my masters. I left about seven eight months in. Excuse me, moved back to Portland. My mom had told me she wanted to kill herself at one point because she was depressed because my father. So here I am at twenty two, twenty three, thinking, what the f are you telling me this for? And I remember telling her specifically, I was driving her in the car. And my mom didn't learn to drive until she was 50, by the way. So that was a whole – I had to teach my mom to drive. That was a whole different story. Um, <laughs> it was horrific and scary for me. Um, and so we're coming off the freeway. My mom says, I just want to kill myself. And I just remember saying, either go do it or go get, go get help. But don't tell me, your, your 23-year-old son, that you've got problems because I've got problems too. You know, and, I, and I think for me, I was really upset because I had no one to turn to. I had no rock. You know, in the process. So fast forward, in my late twenties, I I get fired from a job, um, and it's kind of a funny story. So I took a job down in San Jose, and about six or eight weeks in, I realized that it wasn't the job I was hired to do. Like the whole the whole goalpost moved, like left of center, like just completely moved. And so one day, you know, back then, antivirus technology wasn't that strong, so I clicked on a button. And I took down the whole entire network of 25 offices in one fell swoop. <laughs> and so, <laughs> so I, I show up to work like four days later, and I was locked out of the office. And I was the manager of the office, and I was fired right there on the spot. It was the best thing that ever happened to me. I was so happy to be out of that job. And you know, w- w- you know, your podcast is about people's journey and how to get up. And my my journey isn't this one. I mean, my dad's death is pretty significant. Don't get me wrong. My brother stealing money from me is significant. But I never feel like that was the one thing that made me pivot. I feel like it was part of a larger story. So, you know, I, I, I lose my job. I move to New York. 
I live in Staten Island, also like a different continent and country. And then I get my MBA. And while I was getting my MBA, this was like the next big moment in my life. I traveled to Australia. I took a team of water polo players to Australia. You, you and took, I realized I'm that, sorry, you cut out there. You took what? Yeah. I took a team of water polo players. Water polo. <laughs> yes, that's my background. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> so I was coaching. So at this point, I wanted to be a coach. Hmm. I was like, you know what? I'm going to go coach. Uh, I was teaching little kids to swim, adults to swim. I thought I had, I, had, I had a knack for it, I thought. So two years into this, you know, I'm getting my MBA. I get to go for free because I'm coaching. I end up getting fired <laughs> because I quit on the pool deck in a championship game because I got so frustrated with the team. Totally immature. To- totally my fault. Uh, and when I sat down in front of the, the athletic director and, and the associates and all that, they just looked at me and they said, you're fired. I said, yep, I probably deserve that. And they just kind of looked at me like, what? And I was like, well, it was my fault, right? So I quit on the deck. I was the jerk. Fair enough. You know, I had no problem with that. So anyhow, so I moved to Japan after this, as you do. And I was like, you know, let's go teach English. And so I moved to Japan. And this was another moment in my life. Now, you know, we all have different types of crucibles or moments of adversity, but imagine getting off an airplane in a country where nothing is in English, no one speaks the language, you can't read the food packages, you don't know how to take the train system, and you've got to sort yourself out. Yeah, like that there. was essentially what it was. I was, yeah. I was there. I, I know yeah. Japan, yeah. yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. Mm-hmm. Uh, did you teach there? No. No, oh, I'm the only one who travel? didn't. I'm the only one yeah. who didn't. <laughs> uh, no, I went. I went there uh, to, just to visit someone, and uh, and it was just yeah. a, a great experience for me. But go on. Yeah, it's an amazing country. So, yeah. but I, so I, I remember at 30, it was my birthday, and I called my mom, and I was in a phone booth crying, just just tears. Now remember, I'm in this ocean still. I'm just doing whatever the next thing is that's coming, and I'm in this ocean. And I call my mom crying. And I'm like, I'm 30 years old. I don't know what I'm doing. My life is miserable and blah, blah, blah. And this is – my mom never gave me good advice ever. This was the best advice she ever gave me, by the way, hands down. She was like, and excuse me if you're not allowed to swear, but she was like, shut the fuck up, hang up the phone, and go live your life. You're only 30 years old. And I was like, oh, oh, okay. <laughs> that was the end of it. But like in that moment in life, you know, we all get in these moments in our head where we think it's the worst-case scenario. And, you know, for many of your guests, there was probably moments of their, of their adversity that they were in where they thought it couldn't possibly get any worse. But many of the, much of the situation is they're actually creating additional problems. Like they're not actually focused on the actual issue or the reality of the situation. It's all the ancillary noise in your head that actually makes the situation much worse. So I move back to the States and I've, I've, we're getting to my PhD part here. So, a lot of my adversity in terms of, of moving up my path are these these micro moments in my life that that were serendipitous. And so, again, I still don't know what I'm doing. I have no idea what my job is, right? I've had two jobs early in my 20s. Otherwise, I've kind of just bounced around trying to sort myself out. People all around me, all my friends, some of my family members basically thought that I was just kind of a loser. I had no direction, no goals. Now, imagine – conscious of people around me imagine how that makes you feel about yourself and i just reinforced it with my with my negative self-talk of yep i don't deserve this i don't know where i'm going i don't know what i'm doing why would people like me 
you know, I didn't have a girlfriend for almost all of my 20s. So it was like one of these things where it was just one thing after another. And I was like, holy shit. I'm like, what am I going to end up being? So I decided, you know what, I'll, I'll go to the Peace Corps. So academically, I got a 3.5 at the institution that I went to for my MBA. But I, I downplayed it because I thought it was really easy. I thought the school was easy. I didn't think it was hard. I figured out how to game the system. Um, and so I didn't really give myself any emotional credit for that success. So I'm still really in a negative space about who I am as a person. But I decided to do the Peace Corps. I'm like, let's give back. Let's do something great and grand. And I went to an event at Portland State University. And I remember this so vividly. It was an information session about the Peace Corps. I'd got in. I'd got out my placement in Eastern Europe. Um, I had passed everything. I was, so I was, getting, I was getting set to go. And these four African guys come and sit down at the table after the event. And we're all chatting with each other, talking about world politics and what's going on in Africa and what's going on in the U.S. And I said, so what do you guys do? And, and they all said, oh, we're PhD students. And in that moment, it was probably the first time in my life where I felt like I belonged in the room with people who were intelligent. And I thought, huh, they're no smarter than I am. Maybe I should get a PhD. And again, counterintuitive if you knew who I was as a child. Like I was never an A student, never a B student, really a C to C plus student. And, and so I, I applied to university. And I remember the university I applied to is University of Western Australia. I wanted to go abroad again. And so I did a bunch of research. I ended up picking Perth, Australia, of all, all places. And I remember when I applied there, they said, well, we haven't decided yet. And so literally for 12 straight weeks, I called every single week to the same person asking if I got in. And you should, you should have heard the annoyance on her voice when I would call. She would just be like, uh, you know, you could just hear it. And I would just call and call and call. And I think – because I did, wasn't the best applicant, but I showed the most persistence. I got in, and I was like, "Holy cow!" And um, and it, you know, right now the schools are ranked top 100 university in the world, so it's a good university. It's not some dodgy school on the side. <clears throat> so I fly to Perth, and I remember, I remember the first day there. I woke up and I had a panic attack. Again, I'm 31 now, 32, and I'm thinking, "What the f am I doing?" Right? Like I'm sure you've been in those moments where you've woken up and you have anxiety all over your body. Like you can feel your soul screaming at you saying, what the fuck did you just decide to do? Like that's what I felt. And I said, you know what? I need to go for a run. And so I, I put these shoes on and I get ready to go for a run. And I start running west, right? And, and Perth is laid out. It's, it's a beach town. And with every step, the anxiety was just raising like I was just kept negative self-talk. What am I doing? What am I doing? Why am I here? I don't belong here. I'm not smart enough to be here. I'm not talented enough. No one will respect me. And every step for probably about two kilometers. And all of a sudden, I get to the crest of this hill, and I overlook, and I see the Indian Ocean at sunrise. And it was the most transformative moment in my life to this day. And I don't know why. I just know that when I took that next step as I saw the ocean, all of that anxiety left my body. Hmm. It just left. And I said to myself, you're here for a reason. Let go of your anxiety and just give it a shot. Yeah, and that, that's it, great. It, that's it was great. such an amazing feeling. Yeah, I, I always noticed, so, I, I noticed in myself that uh, – Nature. Whenever, whenever I connect with nature, it's like everything else just disappears. 
and it's just yeah you just realize that there's more to life than just you you know it it kind of opens your mind up which is mm-hmm. why which is why you know meditation and all these spiritual kind of practices work is because it gets you outside of yourself and to yeah. see something and feel something that is larger than yourself and you just realize that there's more there's something outside there right you're a grain of sand you're a grain of sand in a big yeah. world yeah right mm-hmm. at the end of the day so you know and and, and so for me, I finished my PhD, but in the process of finishing my PhD, I got married, had two kids, started a job. I mean, talk about, you know, self-induced pain. Um, and so, you know, uh, I did all of these different things. And so now I have a PhD and I have a book coming out and, and I'm doing things that I almost feel like I stumbled into because of one personality characteristic that I, I have above all other personality characteristics is grit. I, I just I just don't give up, right? I'm very resilient, uh, and maybe I should give up on certain things, but I don't think about it because I'm so focused. And uh, and I think for many people who go through hell and they pick themselves up by their own bootstraps, there's something inside them that says, "I will prove the world wrong." And at some point in that process, as they prove the world wrong, prove the world wrong. They prove themselves right. And in that process of external looking for external validation, they realize they're getting internal validation. And when you get that internal validation, that actually helps you rise above where you originally thought you could get. And you know, it's it's an amazing process. You know, so here we are today, I have a PhD ten years later. I'm getting ready to go through another transformation. You know, I don't I don't think my journey is finished. I think that you know, four kids later, uh, no hair anymore. So I've lost one battle, but I've gained four great kids. And, and, you know, I've had the ability to just keep going. Like, no matter how hard I get punched in the face, I just go. And I, right. I, and I don't know where I get that from. I don't know. You know, maybe my mom is a good example of that. I mean, she's had a pretty crappy life. So maybe that's it. So... Now, how did how did the executives after hours podcast come about? Yeah, it's, it's a great question because it came about as something totally different than what it ended up as. And so, uh, about three years ago, my itch for transformation started again, and I have a very strong entrepreneurial spirit, but very poor at execution, if that makes sense. Uh, lots of great ideas, not a lot of financial support, and as you have more kids, it's harder to take those risks. And so um, about 2014 or 15, I had just turned 40, and I, I, wanted to, I wanted to get out of academia. You know, it's a great lifestyle, but it's a fixed income, and I don't particularly love academic research. So I decided to, to create a business with my wife, and that didn't go well uh, because it's my wife and I, and we will fight about just about everything because we each think we're right. And so and I don't mean that Nate, like I love my wife. We get along really good, but when it comes about business decisions, she has her ideas. I have my ideas and it's better that our ideas stay in separate courts, so to speak. We're much better than we used to be actually. So the idea that I came up with or settled on was this idea of corporate wellness because it's a very, it's a very fast growing space in the U S it's becoming almost close to a billion dollar business at this point. 
And so I didn't know anything about it, though. And so I originally started the podcast called Brave Endurance Wellness Podcast with the idea of interviewing CEOs and executives in the corporate health and wellness space because I wanted to learn about it. And I thought, what better way to pick a brain than to ask the people who are actually doing it? But what I, but what I found out, though, is I really cared less about the industry and I cared more about these people's journeys. And because, you know, I think that when you, like for you, for example, and for me, when we ask people about their life and their journey and their, and their difficulties, it helps us to make peace with our own. It makes us feel like we belong in a bigger tribe of people because other people have gone through what we've gone through. And it, and it gave me the ability to ask questions about their adversity that were questions I probably had for myself but didn't really have quite the answer I was looking for. And I wanted to get different perspectives on individuals' thoughts in their, in their adversity and their own particular journey. And so after about the 70th episode, I switched the name from, from Brave Endurance to Executives After Hours. And so, you know, I think last September, in fact, about a year this time, I switched the name of the podcast to Exec- Executives After Hours, and it's been going pretty well. You know, um, I'm looking forward to the next level after the book comes out. But yeah, so that's kind of how it came about. And, and I got to tell you, I mean, like, like you, there's just something in a good story, like a personal story. There's just something about it that is humanizing. Mm-hmm. And may I say the word authentic, because now I hate that word, though. That's what my book is about. Um, <laughs> But but like about people being real with themselves and real with others. Yeah. So so getting back to the original question I I asked when we started, <laughs> what um, what are you noticing for yourself doing all these interviews with these people? That are you also noticing like I am that there are common threads that are that keep coming up with people and that even though everyone's story is different, that it's always follows a similar path. Yeah. You know, I mean, I think that what I found was a combination of outcomes. And I, and I think that that's kind of the bigger thing is that as a leader has their adversity or crucible, if you will, if I can use my tag, the ones that, that see it as an opportunity for growth are the ones who really, and this was the theme of, of many leaders, not only do they develop their self-awareness through various means, but they also develop a sense of compassion, a compassion for themselves, self-compassion, but compassion for others. And you know what I found in these interviews is those that had compassion also created the idea and desire to create shared meaning with people around them. So if you're having a bad day, Michael, and I've had the same bad day, the same horrific events, I'm going to take time to listen to you and to empathize with you. And the reason why it's compassion, not empathy, is that compassion compels me to figure out a way that I can relieve your suffering. So it could be something as simple as with some of these leaders, you know, talking on the phone, I would say, well, this is a problem I'm having. And they would say, well, let's talk offline. And they would help me with it. That's, that's, that's them showing compassion for me as an individual. And it was a 20-minute conversation. That's it. You know. And I think a lot of these leaders had this drive to also live their life with more integrity, um, be, be more transparent about who they are, be more reliable. Not all. It's not 100% accuracy rate for this, but this is the general thing. And the other thing, and really the biggest thing that bookends this whole idea between the crucible and self-awareness is so many of these leaders thrived had a desire for and uh, just an appetite for learning. 
learning about themselves, learning about other people, learning about their industry. They're curious. And I think when people are curious, it allows them to understand the assumptions they're making in this world and question them. And for many of them, they actually, because, you know, and I think you probably find this, the older you get them, you you hear this all the time, the less you actually know. So you, these leaders who've been through a lot of difficulties realize there's a lot to learn from other people from different perspectives. So they're much more open in the process of learning too. Hmm. Well, the subject of learning also comes up a lot in, in our interviews too here at Rise Up 8, which is that uh, when you're encountering adversity uh, and you're in a down period, uh, a lot you can really, rather than just sitting around and moping, just learning something new, learning something about what, where you're trying to go or the industry you're trying to get into or... Uh, even learning something completely different, like a new language or whatever, uh, can be very helpful on, on several fronts because, number one, you're gaining more experience and knowledge in, in the field that you want to go into. Uh, or if it's something different, you're getting your mind off of banging your head against the wall and doing something different, which allows you to come back to the problem at hand with a fresh perspective. So learning is something that is suggested by so many people. Um, Mm -hmm. Learning, uh, whatever it could be, uh, taking a class or a course or teaching yourself to do something. I myself, I've, I've taught myself how to become a film director, how to become a film editor, Um, how to become a graphic artist. I did all this with no one helping me. Um, (laughs) although I have to say I did, you know, did have some, some help with, with some of the editors who, who, uh, gave me some pointers and helped me out with that. But a lot of this stuff is just trial and error. You can teach yourself to do almost anything, um, and become really professional at something, possibly without any real guidance, uh, just from looking at what other people are doing and getting ideas from them. Um, for instance, with graphics, I've been doing graphics for many years, never, never had anyone teach me anything about graphics. Um, but just by learning and observing others, just picking up you know, what they're doing and just applying it to, to your work, um, that's just one example, but uh, do you find that learning has helped you with with adversity? I, you know, the short answer is yes. I think I think that my curiosity of trying to to solve my what I perceive as systemic issues has driven me to have conversations, and for me, conversations are critical to. Uncovering my hangups, um, and I think that you know, I wish I read more. I wish I was a more ferocious reader. I hide behind the fact that I've got four kids under ten, uh, and my life is incredibly hectic with that. But um, I do read a ton of of newspapers, news. But in terms of my personal growth, you know, I think that's my next journey is to really open up myself to the possibility of greatness and. I think that that possibility only happens when you're ready for it to happen. 
uh, for many people who go through adversity, you know, I think there's always this, this, this thought process that, okay, something bad has happened. I'm going to be better. But the better only happens once you're willing to, to uncover the cause. You know, a lot of times we treat our own personal issues, our own adversity with a Band-Aid. You know, my mom has many Band-Aids. My mom's never been able to rip the Band-Aid off and actually look at the chronic cause of the issue to work on the cause. She just wants to put a Band-Aid over it to hopefully have it go away. And so for me, at this point, I'm, I'm ready for the next level of learning I'm ready for myself, you know. And, and to be fair, I mean, I wouldn't got a PhD. So if I didn't have some sort of curiosity... I wouldn't have got a PhD. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm really about trying to push myself beyond what people expect me to be. I mean, I, I mean, I, when I say to you, my mom and dad were just thrilled that I tried college. They literally just said, we're thrilled you tried college. It wasn't like an expectation that I went. It was that I tried. Or, you know, whatever adventure I'm on, you know, the support I get from my mom is like, well, that sounds nice, but it's always like the but, like what's wrong with it? And so, you know, you have to, as an individual, if you don't have the support network around you, you have to be willing to find it then. You have to be willing to support yourself through education, through reading, through watching. I mean, geez, with today's world, YouTube is a treasure trove of content for you. Um, TEDx's have so much content for learning. I mean, I think that if you really want to learn a lot about yourself, and I know this is things that I do, there's so many opportunities now, and it's so much more accessible than it ever was 15, 20 years ago. Hmm. So when, when people, when we're talking about adversity and fall down seven times, rise up eight, when it, what have you learned about that, that phrase? How does that apply to you? in your life oh my gosh I mean you know again I, I grew up in a house we it was a 900 square foot house so in New York that's a mansion but where I, where I grew where, where I grew up it was six of us in a house with one bath and early on in my life the electricity was turned off um, we barely ate um, we weren't totally poverty stricken, stricken so it could have always been worse but we never took vacations and so the point I'm saying is that the expectations that I were put on me from anyone, everyone around me, everyone. I mean, you can go to anyone in high school, anyone in college. The expectations were so minimal. And every time I heard something negative about me, I feel like I always had a choice. And even psychologically, when I was beating myself up, there was something inside me that said, keep going. And so you can, you can factor in my dad's death. You can factor in my brother's dealing money. You can factor and everything that should have probably put me back, every failure, getting fired, trying to start jobs, um, you know, so many like these micro moments of failure, any one of them could have put me on a different path. You know, I remember, I remember at 18, I was living at my, my grandma's house and there was a car wreck behind the house and she got me up really quick. She's like, go see if you can help. So I, I run over there and I go out to help and this, tree was, this car was wrapped around a tree. And I remember at 18 watching someone take their final breath. I remember watching their chest go up. It was me and two other guys in this truck trying to help this guy out. His chest goes up. It rises about two to three inches and then just collapses. And blood comes out of his eyes, his ears, his nose. Right? Like that's pretty pretty traumatic for an 18, 19-year-old to see. And, you know, and, and, and in these moments, 
it just teaches you about the the simplicity and complexity at the same time of life. And so for any one of those 7, 8, 10, 12, 15 times that I had a difficulty, adversity, no matter how big or small, and any human being this can be the case, you have a choice in that moment to how you respond to that adversity. And for me, there was always two voices. One was one path, one was always the other. And there was just somewhere along my journey, I just learned this lesson that the path less traveled is sometimes the better path. And I've really hung on to that. You know, I think for many of us, when we come to decision points in our life, we pick the one that's less or most comfortable and least complex. It doesn't, doesn't mean it's the best. And so I think that's always a challenge for anyone who gets knocked down. For myself, this is totally a challenge. You know, at, at, at 19, I could have easily done that line of coke, right? What happens to me at the point? What was it inside me that said that was not a wise choice? Was it my parents? Maybe. I don't know. Maybe, you know, the berating of saying that drugs were bad as a kid. Maybe that was somewhere deep inside there. But there was something inside me that said that path will not lead me anywhere but down. So let's make a different choice. Even though I knew I didn't know what I want to do in college. I no idea, but I saw that as a better option than just making money in the moment, you know. Uh, and I was, I was, I'll say this one more thing about advice. You know, again, my parents weren't big on giving sage advice, but my dad did give me one bit of advice once that also stuck with me. And he said, "Why are you quitting college?" I said, "Oh, I want to earn money. I want to." You know, it was kind of a lame excuse. I just didn't know what I wanted to do, but that, in my mind, that was my rationale. And he said to me, "Listen, you have your whole life to make money. Don't be in such a rush." And it was such, such great advice that it took me six, seven months to understand, but I did get it. So to kind of kind of come back to your initial question about you know going down seven and getting up eight, I think for me, it, it's in my personal DNA of grit and resilience. And I think my competitive personal drive to prove the world wrong, and I don't know how healthy this is, by the way, but to prove the world wrong, that I belong in the conversation. And for me, that's all I need right, right now. And once I'm in the conversation, I don't know what's going to happen to me next. Maybe I help drive the conversation. Maybe I help people create their own conversations. But I just know that's where I'm going now. And, and on the subject of where you are now, you're in Dubai, right? Yeah, so I'm just uh, – well, right now I'm in the States. But yeah, so I live just outside Dubai. Dubai. How did you, how did uh, you get, get to Dubai of all places? <laughs> You know, and this is another another moment of adversity. You know, again, adversity doesn't have to be always traumatic. And I think we often think that adversity is always traumatic just by the nature of the word. But adversity can just be an uncomfortable situation. So, you know, I, I lost my last job, actually. I mean, to be frank, I, I was teaching at a university in Philadelphia. I didn't get tenure. I thought I was going to. And, you know, in life, these are nudges. So... I had an opportunity. I had a friend of mine living in the Middle East and said, you know, it's great for saving money. It's a great environment. And I also thought, you know, being a dad of four, it was, it's, it's my job. And this is I kind of, I'm kind of a bit snobby about this. So I apologize if it comes across that way to your listeners. It's my job to give my kids the tools to navigate a global society. And there's no better way to do it than to go live abroad and give them the opportunity to meet people from all around the world. I mean, my son and my daughter, who are the two in school right now, they're in a school with kids from France, Ireland, England, 
Scotland, Syria, Jordan, uh, Emirati, Saudi Arabia. Um, gosh, probably about three or four other cultures or nationalities. So imagine that in your formative years, what that does for your psyche about different cultures around the world and the prejudice that you may or may not form if you're not around those people. And so, you know, the opportunity to go there and teach in a university, which has been great, it's not my end goal. It's more about the opportunity for growth for me and my kids and my wife. And, you know, I, for me, if you stop learning, you stop growing. So that's kind of one of my mantras. And maybe that's how one of the ways I keep getting back up is that I want to learn why. Why did that happen? What, what is it inside me that made that happen? Why do some people never seem to fail? Why do some people who fail seem to be successful? Like, what is it? I just think it's just a fascinating introspective conversation that you can have with people. Mm-hmm. Sure. That's, that's why I'm doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so what about the logistics of moving to Dubai? <laughs> did, did you, was it? It's a, it's a shit show. Um, I mean, how difficult uh, was that to, to yeah. uproot your family? I mean, I understand the, uh, you know, the, the whole hassle of, of moving, but what about the legalities of the whole thing? Isn't that, I mean, legality is just having to get visas, and, and typically the employer will help do that process. Mm. Um, so you have you like know, a sponsor. You have to coordinate with, you have correct, like a school spon- sponsors me. Oh, okay. Yeah. You have to remember, this is the third country I moved to. So I've, I've, I've now kind of accustomed to the fact that the process takes longer. It's complicated. Different offices you have to go to. Uh, um, but it's not impossible. You know, and I, and I think that the complexity is just trying to move with four kids under nine. That's that's the complexity because there's a lot of moving pieces and a lot of luggage you got to take with you when you go. So it's uh, it's a bit of a work from that standpoint, but but so much worth it. You know, I one of my other core philosophies is that travel cures all ills, and so what I mean by that is by seeing the world that puts everything in perspective. I mean, a great example is literally next to my house. There's this little tiny retail shop. It has three tiny stores. And when I say retail, I mean like three shacks. One is food and groceries. One is an air con and one is a tailor. It's an air conditioning company. These guys all come from India, Sri Lanka, uh, Nepal. They all make probably $200 a month if they're lucky. They all live in the back of these buildings with no air conditioning. They all take maybe one shower a week. They all use bathrooms outside, uh, and they're all still incredibly happy. So I think it puts life in perspective when you see people who – or I mean another example, there's Afghani kids and Pakistani kids that live in our neighborhood, and they go play soccer in the soccer field with no shoes, a raggedy ball, and they're smiles the whole time, it's just the happiest kids. And so you know, for me, when you can travel and you can see these things, it really puts your problems in perspective, right? First world problems versus third world problems. And, and, and so it's, to me, the biggest advantage of getting out of your comfort zone and living someplace else is that it actually helps you come to terms with whatever adversity you're currently going through. You know, again, and I always use this word, it's an opportunity and a willingness and a choice, right? So there's three words, not one. But, but, but that's what it comes down to when you have adversity is, is, is how you deal with it is really up to you. You know, the, the only the only certainty in this world, I mean, I'm sure there's a couple, but the only one that comes to mind is change. Change will happen. 
And if you don't want to be part of it, you're going to get left behind and probably not be very happy. Right. Right. I feel so, like I'm on a soapbox. Thanks for that, Michael. <laughs> so, so uh, again, you, you led me to my next question. Speaking of soapboxes, tell us about, <laughs> tell us about your new book. So the book's title, which I think is great because it kind of dovetails what, what your show is, it's called The Crucible's Gift, Five Lessons from Authentic Leaders Who Thrive in Adversity. And um, I just filmed a, a, I guess, an interview uh, in New York for C-Suite Books. And C-Suite Books is a, is a newer company, probably four or five years old, but they're trying to compete with Bloomberg. And this interview will be uh, distributed to – where does it go to? It goes to 100 luxury hotels, 2,000 high-rises, uh, elevators in Chicago, L.A., New York. And there's another city in there I can't remember. Um, it goes in the 50 largest airports on their closed circuit. And if selected, it goes on United Airlines for their TV. And it goes on Apple TV, Roku, and Amazon Prime. And so that will start airing in February. The book comes out in April. And I'm really excited about it. The reviews so far I've got from it, from the people who are reviewing it, has been really positive. Um, and, I'm, and every time someone tells me, like, so for me, this is the most proud thing I've ever done. Besides getting married, having kids, I think those are amazing things. But personally, professionally, I, I feel like, and this is where I think life, is lesson, life lessons come into play for any of your listeners. I think this is so important. Tackle something you never thought you could tackle. Do something you never thought possible. As I've said multiple times, if you ever saw the history of who I was academically, you would not see me writing a 180-page book that's getting well-received. It's just not – it's not even in the cards of possibility. Um, and, and I'm so proud of it because it's written in my voice, how I talk now, uh, less condescending probably <laughs> than I feel like I'm talking right now. Um, and – it is, it's a combination of, of using the podcast and lessons from these leaders to make points about crucibles, self-awareness, compassion, integrity, relatableness, and learning to show how these leaders thrive in their work environment. And I overlay that with my personal journey and how I've grown in these different areas as well through the podcast and, and through my life. And um, it's it, to date by far the most proud thing I've done because, again, it's never something I thought I could do, and it's the scariest thing I've ever done. We, we have a mantra in our family that I, I will beat into my kids metaf- metaphorically is that don't let fear conquer you, conquer your fear. You know, In life, fear is what makes most of our choices, you know, whether it's fear of failure, fear of judgment. Fear is what makes our choices, and I am hell-bent on myself and leading by example with my kids that I will not let fear make my choices for me. And so writing this book, I've been very transparent with my children and my wife that this is the scariest thing I've ever done. It's the most vulnerable. It's the most um, anxiety-ridden thing I've ever done because I'm allowing myself to be judged by everybody. And people will judge me for sure, you know, but I'm okay with that if I'm accomplishing a larger goal of making myself feel good about me and what I've done. Great. So how can people contact you? I prefer smoke signals or pigeons, but if that is not an option, um, please reach out to me at james at drjameskelly.com. That's K-E-L-L-E-Y.com, and doctor is just D-R. So 
reach out to me. You can go to my website at uh, www.drjameskelly.com. And one of the things I'm asking, and this would be great for you guys, uh, for your audience, is I would love for people to go to my website and submit their crucible, their moment of adversity. I want to share that on my podcast before I open up my shows. So we can start talking about people who have had difficulties and journeys in their life. Just a short one or two paragraph sentence. You can leave your name. Don't leave your name. That's fine. But I want to share those stories with my audience to talk about people's lives and their journeys and how a crucible is an opportunity, not a, a limiter in their life. Awesome. James Kelly, Executive Hours podcast host. Thank you so much for joining us on Rise Up 8 Radio. Really appreciate you taking the time today. Michael Nova, thank you so much for your time and energy to sit down and chat with me on your podcast. <laughs> great. Thank you, James. You're Have welcome. A great day. You too. If you know someone who has an inspiring story that we should interview, please email us at info at riseup8.org. I'm Michael Nova, and thanks for joining us on Rise Up 8 Radio.